The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 10th chapter. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the Gospel of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, Amen. The words that Jesus said in our Gospel reading, they don't sound how we expect Jesus to talk. They sound strange. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a son against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. These words, they sound strange. How can we make sense of them? Well, as it often is with words like these, the context is important. Matthew chapter 10 is where our gospel reading is from, and that is when Jesus sends out his 12 apostles to preach, and he told them what they are to preach. They are to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven draws near. In last week's sermon, I talked to you about what that message meant. Repent means change your ways. The kingdom of heaven drawing near means that God is coming. He is going to reign and he's going to rule and there's going to be judgment. So let the sinner sin no more because we're going to be accountable to God for what we've done. And already you can maybe see how this message would be opposed so as to cause division. People don't like to be criticized. If you had done something that you'd wanted to do, and if I were to say to you, you shouldn't have done that, you'd resent it. Maybe you'd say within yourself, well, who are you to judge? What, are you one of those holier-than-thou people? Mind your own business. 
And it's amazing how deeply seated this attitude is within all of us. You can see it in three-year-olds, and you can see it in 12-year-olds, and you can see it in 80-year-olds. We just don't outgrow it. Our sinful flesh has this proud trait in it, which hates to be humbled, put to shame. So no matter how sanctified a Christian might become, that trait is there, ready to lash out against anyone who might suggest that you've done anything wrong. So already you could see how division could happen with the Apostles' message. We don't want to change. But there is another way that Jesus' message, repent for the kingdom of heaven draws near, can cause even profounder division. And it has to do with the way that we all construct meanings for our lives. Everybody has his or her own understanding of, of what life is all about. So one might believe that life is for the purpose of accumulating wealth. Too much is never enough. Never give. Always only take. Another might believe that what is most important about life is family. Family comes first. But oftentimes, beneath that, actually, is that there should be a certain idealized look for the family. And so you need to have the perfect wedding, and you need to have the perfect childhood, and you need to be the perfect grandparents. You need to make those precious moments and make sure that you prove it with perfect pictures. Another might believe that life is for the purpose of advancing mankind, and so we better invest in science and technology. There are some folks who are working on being able to upload our consciousness to the cloud. If we can interface somehow with computers, maybe we can live on even after our bodies wear out by uploading our consciousness to the cloud so that we can live eternally electronically. That's just one of many dreams of what life is all about that talented people are working on. And everybody has this view of life, what it's for, and each seems to be tailored to what that person likes or what that person is good at. And these visions for life are very serious. Everybody invests their money and their time and their talents and labor and devotion and dreams of grandeur in these views of what life is for. But then, all of a sudden, Christ the King shows up. And the kingdom of heaven draws near. And this kingdom of God claims absolute supremacy over all other views of life. Every other view of life must bow before him. There is only one God, and there is only one Lord, and the meaning of life is in him. And you know what the meaning of life is from the creed. 
God has made you and all creatures. God has redeemed you. The Son of God was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell on the third day. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. And when the kingdom of God comes, when Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead, then it won't matter how advanced technology has managed to become. It won't matter if photo albums are filled with precious memories. It won't matter how much wealth or how many computers we've managed to make, or how many gallons of oil we've managed to burn. Vastly more impressive things like the sun and the moon, to speak nothing of just earthly things, the sun and the moon are going to go all wonky at that time. There is no ruler, no power, no authority, no principality that will not be put under Jesus' feet. Paul says that every high and lifted up thing must be torn down and brought into submission to Christ. And again, Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, does this vision of life sound a bit ruthless? It doesn't just sound ruthless, it is ruthless. You have no idea how seriously God takes the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. How often do you think about that commandment? Maybe not all that much, but nobody escapes this commandment. God made you, and he won't share you with others. God says, Behold, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That means that he won't share you with any other meaning of life. The Lord your God is a jealous God, but let's understand that jealousy rightly. This is not the jealousy of some petty tyrant. God's jealousy is the jealousy of a lover. The book of the Bible called Song of Songs tells you about the love of God for his church. Isaiah and Paul talk about God as a great lover too. God is a lover who ruthlessly seeks out his beloved. And he woos and he courts and he loves his beloved. He's downright obsessed. You are his and he wants you. And to have you, he sends his only begotten son into the flesh, his perfect son, whom he loves, who also is perfectly lovable, this perfect treasure, who is worth more than 10,000 worlds all heaped together. This son comes in such a way, though, that he should become sin for us. He becomes a worm and no man, despised by mankind and rejected by all the people. God gives him into death 
so that by his blood you may be cleansed and presented before him as a bride without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. God, this great adventurer, because this is a great adventure, to send his son in such a way. God, this great adventure, he's not some apathetic bean counter up in the sky. God is the profoundest and activist lover there ever was. And if we sold all that we had so as to, to buy this pearl of great price, we would not be disappointed with what we ended up with. But despite everything that I have said to you about the greatness of God's kingdom, there will still be those who reject this kingdom of heaven. And the reasons for rejecting the kingdom of heaven vary and are almost as numerous as there are individuals. One will reject the kingdom of heaven because he wanted to hold on to all his money and property. You perhaps remember that story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. Another will reject the kingdom of heaven because she can't stand the thought that her son or daughter is rejected and condemned by unbelief. She won't accept a God like that. Jesus, though, really means it when he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, it's not allowed for us to love the thing that has been created more than the one who has created it. And yet when I say this, it's not allowed to love the thing that is created more than the one that has created it. I'm not speaking as though this is just somebody else's problem. The first commandment is our greatest problem too. Even we who want to believe that we're Christians. The first commandment is our greatest problem. We love the created thing rather than the creator. What pulls us away from our devotion to our creator? What pulls us away from church? Isn't it either the fun that we might attain for ourselves elsewhere? Or maybe there's a school event or work or sports and that's very important to the meaning of life that I've constructed for myself. We have our Creator's commandments, too. And when the commandments come to us, we don't want to change. We're not always so sure that we have to, after all. Maybe we can just keep on doing what we're doing, and we don't need to change, and we'll still get away with it. Plus, we're not always so sure that God's right. And what He says, He's awfully old-fashioned, sometimes. So we, the creature will believe and act as though we know what's right and wrong and will act according to our own lights. It's plain to see then that we know how to despise the kingdom of God as well as anybody does. So when we hear that Jesus 
has come not to bring peace but a sword, that there should be this division, we should not think that he's just talking about some horrible villains in faraway places who hunt down Christians. The villains are much closer to home. Your enemies, Jesus says, will be those under your own roof. Maybe this villain can even be located under the roof of your own heart. We shouldn't talk about the kingdom of God only needing to come for other people because, you see, we're fine and we've got it already. No, we need the kingdom of God just as much as anybody, and so we pray so very often, Thy kingdom come. The kingdom of God is such, realize, that God does not exclude people. God, Jesus says, God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The scriptures also say that God desires all people to repent and come to a knowledge of the truth and to be saved. But God also isn't going to be embarrassed if people reject him because they love inferior things more than they love him. Nobody is going to hurt God's feelings by rejecting him. He has better things to do than to worry whether anybody is feeling sorry or sad because they hate him and they hate his love. He's got better things to do. He's the great lover. How could any great lover be derailed from his beloved by, per, by bitter and sour faces of onlookers? So we have this wonderful apostolic message before us today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom of heaven is here for you. And my advice to you is that you join in on this glorious romp of our Lord Jesus's. There is no greater adventure in the cosmos than living under him and serving him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Now I say that and realize that lots of people aren't going to see that. It's completely hidden to them. It won't be revealed until the last times, but this wonderful adventure is real. It is just as real and true as Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But if you don't want to join in, then I'm sorry, I've only got sad news for you. There's no stopping this kingdom of God, even if you should rage and fume like the devil and start killing Christians left and right. You're not going to stop it. It won't do you any good. As Luther says in A Mighty Fortress, and take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife, though these all be gone, our victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth. God wins. Amen.